right. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? Awesome. I'm doing great. I want to say welcome to all of you that are here to join us for worship and study at Hosanna Christian Fellowship. I want to say welcome to those of you that are joining us online. We're so excited to have you guys here today. And so Obviously, we're doing things a little bit different, but I wanted to kind of take the opportunity uh, to kind of give the preface to what we're going to be talking about today, and then we'll get into worship and a time of uh, praise and all that. But um, I really wanted to start today with a story, and some of you may have heard this story before. It's a story of a pastor who was uh, building a patio on his house, and he had all of his uh, hammers and nails and tools and all that stuff, and as he was building his patio, he noticed that there was a neighbor kid standing on the sidewalk just watching him. And as he kept working, he would look back and he would see this neighbor kid just standing there looking at him, not saying a word. And so after a while of, of working and building, this pastor started to wonder why the kid was there, expected him maybe to get bored and wander off, but the kid never did. So finally, the pastor put the hammer down and he's like, hey, bud, can I help you with something? And the kid's like, nope, I'm fine. I'm just waiting to see what a pastor says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. <laughs> what does a pastor say when they hit their thumb with a hammer? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> what does a Christian say when? Fill in the blank, right? You know, the point of this whole section of 1 Peter that we've been studying for the last few weeks is simply this, that the world is watching us. The world is always watching Christians the mic is on, so to speak. The camera is rolling. And really, the idea that Peter has been teaching us is that we're being watched as citizens, as we live within the governments that we find ourselves living under. We're being watched in how we respond to our bosses and those in authority over us. We're being watched in our marriages, in our friendships, in our relationships. And so Peter says, because we're being watched by the non-believing world, be sympathetic to one another, love one another, be compassionate, be non-retaliatory. These are all things we talked about in our last study on Wednesday night. And under most circumstances, this behavior is, is completely acceptable. I mean, even to the world, right? If you treat people kindly and, and you treat people good, generally the world will accept that. These traits and these attributes are something even the world will go, hey, that's cool, you're a good person, you're a nice person especially when we treat them that way. And we all appreciate being treated good and kindly, but what happens when they don't? What happens when your faith, when your witness meets hostility? What happens when your goodness runs up against their gripes? And that's a great question. What happens when you do good, when you're being good, when you're being kind and you're being loving towards people, but they still slander you. They still, whether intentionally or unintentionally, try to harm you or to harm your character, get you fired, get your business shut down. What do we do when people who hate God decide that just because we believe in God, we should therefore suffer pain because of it? That's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. But before we get to that, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are and what you're doing. We thank you, Lord, that you have us in this world, Lord, even while we know that we're not of this world. 
But God, we are here to be lights. We are here to be cities on a hill, Lord. We are here to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God, somebody proclaimed it to us. And we came to that place of recognizing our need for forgiveness. Our need for salvation, Lord. And those of us that call ourselves Christians hearing this this morning, God. We were adopted into your family by the free gift of salvation that you offered to us. And Lord, we are called to then take that message and to keep sharing it with those that don't know you. And Lord, we are called to live and act and behave the way you would call us to, to follow your example, to be Christ-like, Lord. And in many cases, in most cases, Lord, that goodness that we do, God, Christians have, have, have been instrumental in, in, in civil rights um, moving forward and building hospitals and just so many things around the world over the centuries, God. Christianity has been behind. But sometimes, Lord, even in doing all that good, the world still comes against us simply because we do that good in the name of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, today we ask that you would just speak to us about what we are to do, how we're to behave, how we're to act, Lord, when our faith meets hostility, when our faith meets the fire. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you, God. Lord, we just want to praise your name now and glorify your name because you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you will open your Bibles or your apps to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, um, I'd like to open with another story, uh, if you will uh, grant me the grace to do so. Um, in 1999, there was a man named Graham Staines, and he, along with his 11-year-old and 6-year-old sons, were unfortunately burned to death in India by militant Hindus. Now, he had been a uh, Christian missionary there in India since 1965, and all that time he was there, he had been working to care for people. He he took care of people with leprosy. He uh, really ministered to those that were just in abject poverty, that had absolutely nothing. But one night in 1999, he was actually teaching at a camp out in the jungle, okay? There was a camp out in the jungle where an annual gathering of Christian believers would come together for fellowship, for teaching and training, and he was there teaching, and he had his two sons there with him. Around midnight on this particular night, a mob of about 50 militant Hindus that were upset simply because people were becoming Christians snuck into the camp and set fire to the Jeep where Graham and his two young sons were sleeping. Um, As the Jeep caught fire, Graham and his two sons tried to get out, but the mob, armed with weapons, surrounded the vehicle and prevented them from doing so. And when all was said and done and the fire was cooled, they found Graham's body uh, in the back of his Jeep, clutching his two young sons to himself. Now, you hear stories like this, and you go, why did this happen? Why? There's one reason. They were Christians. That is why this happened. They believed in and proclaimed and preached Jesus Christ as God Almighty, God in the flesh, the one and only way to salvation, and they were murdered because of it. They were there in India doing good, loving people, taking care of people, pouring their lives into people, but simply because they were Christians, they suffered because of it. Well, 1 Peter chapter 3 presents, the verses we're looking at this morning, presents two realities that we face while we're living our lives, living our faith in this world. And there are two realities that we come up against when we're living our faith openly and boldly. 
The first reality that we're going to look at this morning is that you do good and you're not bothered. <laughs> you do good, nobody hassles you, right? The second reality is you do good and you suffer anyways. And so in these five verses that we're looking at this morning, I'm going to point out four truths that we can expect, four truths you can expect and count on when our witness, when our faith meets hostility. So in verse 13 there, we see the first truth. And the first truth, if you're taking note, is that normally goodness is accepted. He writes there in verse 13, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? Now normally in most cases, doing good is a good thing. And in most cases, even the world around us, the non-believing world around us, accepts that. That when good is done, it's considered a good thing. That's the point, that's the thought behind verse 13. Now for context, I wanna take you back to verse 10 real quick in 1 Peter chapter three, and it says this. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. And so as Peter was teaching there, essentially, if you wanna see good, do good. Right? That's the general idea here. But then in verse 13, he says, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? Now, this is what's known as a rhetorical question. If you don't know what that means, it's a question asked knowing that everybody already knows the answer. That's a rhetorical question, right? You know, does the, uh, does the lodgings in Montana sound amazing? Of course, we all, right? We all, we all know the answer to that question. So Peter is saying, look, if, if you live the way that I just described, if you're loving, if you're humble, if you're non-retaliatory, if you're compassionate, he's like, who's gonna bother you? Who's gonna be upset with that? Who's gonna come against you if you live that way? And being a rhetorical question, the implied answer is nobody, right? Nobody's gonna come against you if you do that. Normally, you will never suffer if you are a person who does good to other people. I think even the greatest enemies of the gospel are at least not openly not gonna come against the concept of genuinely helping people, right? If Christians wanna build a hospital, the world's not gonna be like, no, don't build that hospital because it's generally a good thing and, and they're gonna benefit from it too. And this is the point of Peter's question here. The problem is, the challenge for us as believers is sometimes we could think that only good should ever come to us when we do good. That when we do good, there should never be suffering. There should never be challenges. And if suffering comes when we do good, well, maybe we should stop doing good. That's sometimes the thoughts that could run through believers' minds. I think it's pretty safe to predict that at least currently, most of us will never face death here in America simply because we believe in Jesus. It could happen, sure, but likely not, at least not yet. Today, you could go down the street, you could walk into a store, you could go by Starbucks or whatever, and you could tell someone, you know, I love Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior, and he died for you too. And you could generally expect that they're not going to immediately punch you in the face. Again, it can happen, and it does happen, but generally, we still have a society that's like, okay, and if you live the way that Peter has been describing, if you behave the way he's been describing, you'll likely 
have mostly a faith-based persecution-free life, generally. You know, if you do good, you'll likely stay out of jail. If you do good and live the way God wants you to, you'll likely have peace with your neighbors, generally. Few if any hassles. And that's the idea here in this first truth that normally goodness is accepted. But in verse 14, we see the second truth here is that persecution is inevitable. He says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. So he says, even if. The idea is that persecution really is inevitable for Christians doing good because the good we do is not good for the sake of good. It's good motivated by, meant to glorify, meant to represent and proclaim Jesus Christ. The good we do as believers is in response to the goodness of God in our own lives. And it speaks of, when we bring the gospel with our good works, it speaks of the inherent lack of selfless goodness in the lives of people without him. Eventually, because we carry the light of the world and we shine that light into a very dark world, there will be some problems. Paul made that promise to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He said, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So normally, doing good is accepted. Just doing good things and being kind is accepted by the non-believing world around you. But eventually, persecution will come because the good we do is in the name of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, verse 19, it says this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So our doing good in Jesus' name is like, is like coming into a dark room that's full of people. Their eyes are dilated. They're used to the dark. It's nice and cozy. You can't see everything. But when you open the blinds, you let the sunlight in, right? They all turn into vampires. (laughs) And I've been there. You're sitting in a dark room and someone wants to crack the door open and you're just like, Shekinah glory, right? It just pierces into your eyes. And when you do that, the the light stings, the light exposes, the light reveals everything. and, 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 And those in the darkness, they want you gone. They're like, turn off the light. And this is how it is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is how it is for those who do good in the name of Jesus Christ. Because you might be doing something kind and good, but when you say, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus, wow, it's like shining a bright light into the darkness of their lives. But we do good because Jesus did good. We follow his example. And he did good to demonstrate his love for humanity. You go through the Gospels, you see he healed the sick. He healed the blind. He healed the diseased and the crippled. He raised dead people. And those that that received those blessings were happy because of that good deed. And even those around them that received those blessings were happy. What an amazing miracle. But eventually, when the message that the good he was doing the good that demonstrated his love for humanity. Eventually, when the message was, was, was obvious to them that, that all of that good was meant to demonstrate that he was here to do the ultimate good for them, 
to forgive them of their sin, that he wanted to do that, that he could do that, that he was here to demonstrate to them how much as God he loved them and wanted to restore their relationship to their creator. And when they understood that that restoration of relationship and that forgiveness and that sin meant forsaking their sinful ways and following Jesus, well, what did they do? We know the story, right? They killed him. They killed him. They wanted to snuff out the light. And I think the major principle here is that persecution is often the result of obedience to God. When we do what God is telling us to do, especially when it comes to how we behave, how we live, how we treat one another, how we minister to people, how we even minister to those in the world that don't know Jesus, eventually, persecution will come. I heard one guy say, great persecution is often the result of the great commission for the saved. You preach the gospel, both in word and deed, and not everybody's going to like it. And you think about it, you know, you could, you could tell someone, I, I did good to you, I did good, I did this for you, just because I wanted to be nice to you. They'll love it. Wow, thanks so much, I was so kind. But you could tell that same person, you know, this kindness that I showed you, this good I did for you, it's because I'm a Christian. It's because I love Jesus Christ and I want to tell you about him. Suddenly, they're not so happy anymore. And it's somewhere in that process of being kind and compassionate and loving as we're doing that, we're going to tell people why we're doing it, right? It's a part of our outreach and our witness. You know, oftentimes, so often when we behave in ways that are so contrary to the world and the difference between being godly and being worldly is, is getting more and more different as the years go on. But when we behave in these ways and we don't steal and lie and, and hurt and take advantage of people, inevitably people go, why are you doing that? Why won't you cheat? Why won't you steal? And then we get that opportunity to share. And when we share, persecution comes. This is what Jesus said in John 15, starting in verse 18. He said, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word that I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you keep my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. And that's just a reality of, of living in this world as a believer. That as far as the world is eventually concerned, maybe not initially, but as far as the world is eventually concerned, when Christians are kind and wonderful and helpful and charitable, they still know that they represent the gospel. And so therefore, they're intolerant, they're exclusive, and that's bad. It doesn't matter about the kindness and how many people they fed and all this stuff. No, no, no. We know they represent the gospel. They represent Jesus into the world. That's bad. Why? Because we know that our gospel says that only those who trust in Jesus will enjoy heaven forever. Only those who trust in Jesus will receive salvation. And all who reject Jesus will unfortunately be lost 
And do you think that's a popular message? Not in our world where everybody can do whatever they want, tolerate all things. Not in our world that says nobody's morality is, is, has any bearing on anybody else's morality. There is only one way to heaven, one way for forgiveness, one way for salvation, and it's Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what we proclaim as believers. We follow his example in doing good to show people we care and love them so that we get an opportunity to tell them about the greatest need they have, the salvation of their souls. Now, if there was a thousand different ways to God, I'm telling you right now, I would preach all of them. But there's not. There's only one. Only one way, and his name is Jesus. Jesus himself said this in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Stick to this truth. Proclaim this truth. Share this truth, and persecutions will come eventually. But when they do, if you look back to the middle of verse 14, it says, you are blessed. You are blessed. It means to be honored, to be privileged, to be fortunate, to be favored. It's you are the one standing on the podium. Not because you're great, but you're honored. You're standing in a position of honor. You're, you're sitting in the seat of honor. You're, 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 you're the VIP, the very important person. It says that you are blessed. The idea is that when we, when we do what God is calling us to do, and we do the good, and we, and we suffer even because of it, it says you are blessed. God honors you. That's the well done, good and faithful servants that we read about. Now I do want to point out a very important qualifying phrase here. If you look back to verse 14 for me, it says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness. And then in verse 17, if you look at that real quick, it speaks of, it says this, it is better to suffer for doing good. He's speaking of something quite specific here. Sometimes we suffer because we're dumb. I, I don't think we're honored in the same way in that instance, okay? <laughs> Sometimes we suffer because we're disobedient. Sometimes we suffer because of poor decisions. He's speaking of something very specifically here. In verse 13, the word good means moral excellence. Moral excellence. He talks about being devoted. Who's gonna come against you when you're devoted to good? When you're devoted to moral excellence? Well, for a Christian, whose morals? God's, right? God's morals. In verse 14, when he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness, that word righteousness means adherence to a moral standard. Whose moral standard? God's. In verse 16, it uses the word good again. It's the same exact word as verse 13. And then in verse 17, he says, look, it's better to suffer for doing good. That phrase doing good in the original language is doing what is morally excellent. Excellent. Again, whose morals? God's. So when we are devoted to living and behaving and acting according to God's moral standard, God's ways, God's, God's instructions, and we suffer for that. And we suffer for, for not only being committed to God's moral standard for living and being, 
but then externally doing the actions that demonstrate that commitment, that demonstrate that we love God and we want to represent him rightly. Actions that the world may initially accept and go, oh, that's great. You're being so good and so kind. What we will find is that we will suffer as soon as they find out that that behavior is based upon is because we are committed to God's moral standard. Because we do it in the name of Jesus. And it says here that when we suffer in that way, God honors you. God honors us. So verse 14, he says at the end there, do not fear them or be intimidated. That's actually a a quote from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. What was happening there in Isaiah chapter 8 is King Ahaz of Judah was afraid because the king of northern Israel had made an alliance with the king of Syria and both those kings had made threats toward King Ahaz and they said, look, we're coming to beat you up. And of course, it was the north in Syria, that alignment, they, they weren't following God. They were, they were contrary to God and they said, we're gonna come beat you up, King Ahaz. And then Isaiah eight twelve, Isaiah tells him, look, don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. The Lord is gonna take care of this. And that's why he is quoting this here. He's like, look, the world may come against you simply because you stand for Jesus. But don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. So normally, doing good is acceptable to the world, but persecution is inevitable because we do it in Jesus' name. The third truth is that reasons to continue are beneficial. Since persecution is inevitable, having solid reasons to to keep going in the midst of the persecution is good, not just good for you, but it's also good for those um, that are doing things to you. Look at verse 15. He says, but in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, which incidentally is exactly what Isaiah told King Ahaz to do back in Isaiah chapter eight. Regard Christ the Lord as holy. And he says, be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence. Keep in a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. So how do we keep doing good when the persecution comes? Because it's built into our our makeup, our, our, our humanity. You know, we do a thing that hurts, you stop doing the thing. Right? And I know many of us, you know, finally one day got the courage built up to go hand out a track, a gospel track to somebody and happened to be the most meanest, nastiest person ever. They tore it up in front of your face and yelled at you and, and you haven't handed one out since, right? Because of fear, intimidation. How do we keep going? How do we keep doing? Well, I think it starts with what he says there to reg- regard Christ as holy in your heart. That means to sanctify him in your heart. That word sanctify means to set apart. So he's saying set apart Jesus as Lord of your heart, Lord of your life. The meaning is this, that that because Jesus holds such a preeminent place of respect and reverence and love and honor in your life, because he holds that place, which incidentally is a great reason to keep persevering, instead of lashing out, instead of retaliating, instead of ceasing the good that you're doing, instead of retreating from doing the good in Jesus' name, 
He says, simply be ready to explain why you do what you do and while you'll, why you'll keep doing it. And that reason that he says to, to hold on to yourself, but also then to be ready to tell people about, is the hope that is within you. What is the hope that is within us? Jesus Christ. Our salvation, right? And you go, well, hope for what? Hope means the expectation that something will be fulfilled. Well, the hope that our selfish nature is done away with. The hope that our salvation from the penalty for breaking the creator's laws is secure, we're forgiven. The hope that our ability to, to, to deny the sinful impulses that come into our lives to, to do what is ultimately good, the very ability to do that is made possible by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The hope that my broken and messed up life can be different because I can be different because the Holy Spirit will transform me. That is the hope that is within me. And it is because of Jesus and what he did and who he is. The hope that our ultimate destination after we leave this life is heaven, not hell. And I want people to know that. I want people to know why I dedicate my life to this Jesus. I want people to know why I do what he says instead of what my nature calls me to do. I want people to know why I will be obedient to him even if it hurts me, even if it causes me suffering. I want people to know that. I want people to know why I'm choosing to do good, even if it may cause difficulty in my life. That word defense there, he goes, be ready to give a, def a defense. The Greek word is apologia. Sounds like our English word apology, right? And that sounds weird. I mean, think about it. Be ready at any time to give an apology to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is within you. Is that what it's saying? I'll say this, there are plenty of Christians that live that way and they're really good at it. Their lives are always, I'm, I'm sorry I'm a Christian. I'll, I'll oh, you know, I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll stop trying to help women keep their babies instead of murder them. I'm sorry I offended you. I won't bring it up anymore. I'm so sorry if I offended you. I'm sorry I dared suggest that marriage is between one man and one woman as God designed it. I'm so sorry. I'm not sorry. I am not sorry for what God's word says. I am not sorry that God Almighty, the creator of everyone and everything, gets to set the standard for what is sin and what is not sin. I'm not sorry about that. Now, not being sorry for that, not being sorry for righteousness doesn't mean that I then get to stop being kind. It doesn't mean I get to stop being compassionate. It doesn't mean I get to stop being loving and, and, and humble towards all. Because I'm not sorry for what God's word said doesn't mean I get to be an obnoxious jerk in my witness. Not at all. It also doesn't mean that I get to stop doing good when, when, when the persecution comes. It doesn't mean I get to stop telling people, I'm doing this in Jesus' name. The English word apology is not really what the Greek word apologia means. What the Greek word means is to give an explanation. It's like standing in a courtroom to give a good, compelling reason why your case is right and true. That, that's what the word means. We get the word apologetics 
from this, right? You guys have heard of apologetics. The study of how to defend the faith. The idea of having reasons and being ready to give those reasons. I think Peter chose this particular word here that specifically means to give an explanation and really has that idea of giving an explanation in a court of law to make an airtight case is because we live in a world where we're always in the courtroom as Christians. Every day where you live and work, among those who don't believe as a Christian, you are always on trial, constantly, always on trial. And people at any given moment in your life that are around you that you have influence on or that you have contact with, they're always thinking in their own head, am I going to believe that what you say is true? Every time you have the opportunity to be a witness to them, word or deed, they're thinking, am I going to believe what you say is true? Am I going to believe in Jesus, that he is God, that he died on the cross for me, that he is the only way to salvation, or am I going to reject Jesus as fake, as untrue? Everyone around us is wrestling with issues of faith. In one way or another, they are wrestling with issues of faith. And much of what they land on is determined by what the Christians say and do around them. And some people just simply don't like hearing that stuff. Don't make me responsible for someone else's salvation. Yes, it is ultimately their decision. Please don't misunderstand me, right? If they decide to reject Jesus and go to hell, that's not going to be held against you. It's not going to be a demerit, right? You're not going to get to heaven and it'll be like, well, you know, 10 salvations and 10 rejections. Well, hey, it's a wash. You're not going to heaven. That's, that's not my point. The point is, is to carry with us a concern and an attitude that we leave a good witness because people's souls are on the line. I've learned this in life. Unbelievers have really, really good questions about Christianity, about Jesus, about God, all of it. And so therefore, Christians ought to have really good answers. We should have really good answers. You might be, you might be really sure that you know what you believe, and that's great. But do you know why you believe what you believe? Those are the reasons why you believe what you believe. Can you, can you articulate that to someone who asks? If they go, why are you a Christian? Can you explain to them why? And if you can't, well, start working on it. Start working on it. Start studying. Start training yourself. You know, obviously, we're here at Bible study. We're talking about the Word of God. We're learning. That's great. But that doesn't mean to forego your own devotion time and, and, and really figure out how do I explain to somebody why I believe what I believe. There's so many great resources out there, and I think some of these will be on the screen, hopefully. There's websites like alwaysbeready.org. Great resource with, with apologetic-type answering and information. Obviously, biblethinker.org with Pastor Mike Winger, right? Hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of video dealing with tough questions from people. You got some YouTube channels. If you want to jot these down, there's a YouTube channel called Got Questions. You might want to look up William Lane Craig. There's a channel called Cross Examined. What do you meme? Red Pen Logic. 
If I'm going too fast, just ask me after and I'll get these to you, okay? There's books out there like Evidence That Demands a Verdict, The Case for Christ, authors like Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel. You read these books in there, and these, these, these books, those two that I mentioned specifically are written from people who were like, this Christianity thing is false, Jesus isn't real, the resurrection never happened, and they said, I'm gonna go prove it. And then they went to study it and got into the historical and the archaeological and the document and manuscript and everything. And guess what happened? They're Christians now. Because the evidence is there. And so, Study, prepare, be ready to give a defense. You don't have to become a a Mike Winger and start a YouTube channel. You could do that if you want. You don't, it's not saying you need to become some scholarly theologian. You just need to be able to give an answer for why you believe what you believe. And it's important. You know, some people think the Bible expects us to check our brains at the door when we walk into a sanctuary. That's one of the accusations from the world today. I see it on TikTok all the time. People talking about how Christians don't think and the church teaches us not to think for ourselves. I just saw one yesterday and I'm just like, it's so frustrating. (laughs) Because we do think and we do reason and we do logic. And so when we give answers, we need to have good answers because they have good questions. But notice there what it says there. We're to do that with gentleness and reverence. That word reverence means with respect. The idea is this, okay? If you get a thrill out of winning the argument and being right and crushing your opponent and making them feel stupid, don't get into apologetics, please. Okay? (laughs) It's not about winning the argument It's not about making them sound or feel stupid. It's about winning souls. It's about presenting a case that could bring them to the place where you convince them of the truth of the Bible, the truth of Jesus, the truth of their need for salvation, and they come to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the point. So the fourth truth here is that when our faith meets hostility, a clear conscience is indispensable. So the second half of verse 16, he said, keep in a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So what is the conscience? We all have different ideas. My definition is the conscience is a God-planted mechanism whereby you either feel accused or excused. You either feel convicted or affirmed. That's our conscience. Is, is that, that internal thing that says what I'm doing is good and right, what I'm doing is bad and wrong. At salvation, our conscience is cleansed. I think that's why we feel so great at salvation, right? The burden's been lifted, right? Your conscience is wiped clean. <laughs> nothing. No guilt, no shame, nothing. It's all gone, done, forgiven. Wow, that seems great. But once that happens, we have to be very careful to guard our conscience from future pollution. <laughs> We have to be very careful by winning the war with sin on the inside. That's the walk of obedience with Jesus. Because when we pollute it, we start carrying the guilt and the shame again that God said, I wiped all that clean. 
And what keeps our conscience clear is winning that war on the inside. And that clear conscience helps us stand before a hostile world. In Acts chapter 23, verse 1, Paul was facing a very hostile Sanhedrin, and he said this, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. I'm not intimidated by you. I don't fear you. Because I have lived obedient to the Lord, I have a clear conscience, and I could stand before you boldly and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter's point is that a clear conscience will help us face a hostile world. When you're criticized, if you have a clear conscience, it's easy to deal with it. If you have a polluted conscience and they criticize you, then you start to go, oh yeah, because I know I did that thing and I said that thing and I, I misrepresented God. You know what, I shouldn't say anything to you and you back away. They might accuse you of all sorts of stuff, but if you have a clear conscience, you'll be bold. You'll be bold and confident, still loving and kind. And so knowing that the persecution coming against you is because you stand for righteousness. Knowing that the persecution coming against you is because you're living a life of righteous obedience to Christ. Knowing that you're obeying him and, and, and doing right and doing good, and even when you stumble and fall, you're putting those things away and you're not giving in, you're not living sinful lifestyles and living in sin. When you do all that, it'll bring peace to your soul. It'll bring a confidence to your witness. And it says there, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. What does that mean? That's that context there when they start to come against you and accuse you. You're doing good. You're doing kind. You're doing this. You're not being disobedient. You're not secretly, you know, doing drugs and sleeping around and doing all this stuff. You know, you, you're, you're, your witness is clear and they come against you and go, you're a horrible person. Why? Because this Jesus thing, ultimately it comes to light that they're the one that has all the horrible things in their life. That they have nothing to accuse you of and they're the ones that will be put to shame. And that's infinitely better than suffering guilt and suffering shame for being disobedient, living disobedient. He says it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I think we all suffer enough for doing evil. We bring just consequence into our lives and, and that's on us. But to suffer for doing good, wow, what a badge of honor. You remember Peter and John got beat up. Don't you dare preach in Jesus' name and they just walked out skipping and whistling and singing and hey, praise God. So I opened up today with a story of Graham Staines, a missionary to India. The other side of the story is that his wife and daughter were not with him at that camp in the jungle when him and his sons were killed. But after they were killed, she decided to stay in India with her daughter and continue the same work that her husband had done for so many years. And she ended up writing a letter that got published in every newspaper in India which meant over a billion people had opportunity to read this because his, his story, his murder, it ended up in the courts and it, it was a nationwide thing. And she said this. She goes, I have only one message for the people of India. I am not bitter, neither am I angry. But I have a great desire that every citizen of this country establish their own personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sin. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. 
I am not leaving this country and going back home. I'm staying here. God has called me here, and I'm going to raise my daughter in your country. Over a billion people got to read that or had access to it. And there, it was in that moment, the world could indeed see what a Christian says when their thumb gets hit with the hammer. When the suffering comes into their life, how are they going to respond? What are they going to say? This is what they say. They respond with love. They respond with forgiveness. They respond with grace. Yeah, that's what Jesus did. That's what we do. She saw the terrible suffering her family endured as an opportunity to tell a billion people that Jesus loves them and that Jesus died for them. So when our faith meets hostility, when our faith comes against the fire, let us understand that in most cases, under regular circumstances, goodness, yeah, it's accepted by most. But eventually, because the good that we do is in the name of Jesus, persecution will come. That doesn't mean stop doing the good. That doesn't mean stop doing the good in the name of Jesus. But because of the the great love and respect that we have for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, let's not retaliate. Let's not get even. Let's not get angry. Let's not stop doing the good or shrinking back from proclaiming why we do it. Instead, be ready. Study, prepare. Be ready to give a reason why you continue, why you do what you do, and give those reasons with gentleness and with respect so that nobody would ever have any good reason, any real true reason, at least no reason based upon our bad witness to reject Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you for what you're doing, and we thank you for your word. God, we know that the doors of our culture being sympathetic to the gospel are closing very rapidly. But still, Lord, help us to keep doing good. Help us as Christians, as a church, to keep seeking to help and be a blessing to those around us. God, we know that eventually when we tell them why we're doing the good that we do, hostility will come. Help us to be ready for it, God. Help us to be ready to meet that hostility because we have sanctified you in our hearts, Lord, that we have made you the sole object of our love and our commitment. Help us to face a hostile world with good answers for their good questions, Lord, that we may win souls. And help us to do all of it, Lord, with a clean and a clear conscience. Lord, one, having been cleansed from all sin by you, but as we move forward, God, that we would live a pure life before you in obedience. Not living a life of sin that would pollute our conscience and cause us to shrink back from our witness, but exactly the opposite, Lord. That our obedience to you and that, 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 that purity of life we have in following you, God. Lord, which involves when we stumble, we immediately, God, repent, forgive us of those sins and help us to keep moving forward in goodness that we would have a boldness in our witness, that we would respond to the hostility that comes against us in all ways and at all times with love, with kindness, with gentleness, with reverence. God, because we know that we aren't perfect people, but we are forgiven. 
And we know that people that don't know you need that forgiveness. So help us to stand strong, God, when our faith meets the fire. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.